So another sign-up video instead. Um, we're going to be at many different passages, but we're going to start in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And the title, as you can see, and the subject for this morning is the subject of unity. But the title is Unity with a question mark. That's not proper English probably to have that dot, dot, dot there, but I kind of wanted the, the, I wanted to look like that. Unity as a question. Uh, right now we hear the word unity used a lot and the call for unity sounded often. And in part that is because right now we are experiencing a lot of disunity. Disunity in our nation, even disunity in the church as at large. And we hear the call for unity coming from both of those realms. We hear politicians calling for unity. Usually we hear that call coming from the political side that is currently winning at the moment. The ones who are in power, they're calling for, they call for our country to set aside our differences and for the sake of the healing of our nation, our broken nation, to unite. But not only do we hear the call for unity being sounded from the political halls, but we also hear it sounded from many Christian leaders. In the past few months, numerous pastors, ministry leaders have been calling for people to unite. I see, saw this much on Facebook and Twitter in particular. A call for, for unity, a call for peace in the midst of turmoil. And it's that call, the one coming from fellow believers and Christian leaders, not necessarily in the context of in a church, but in the context of in our nation as a whole, calling for Christians to lead the way in unity, has somewhat brought about this morning's message. And the question is, what does that unity look like? Maybe even a greater question, should we even be calling for unity in that context? But most important of all, the question is, what does the Bible have to say about unity? And we might think that the Bible has a lot to say about unity. I would guess most of you think that the Bible probably talks a lot about unity. But you may be as surprised as I was to find out that there are actually only a handful of verses where the word unity is actually used. Depending on what translation you use, there are only five verses in the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, that use the word unity. One is found in the New Old Testament and four are found in the New. And we're going to come back to these verses throughout, but let me just show them to you quickly. And they are not from Genesis 11. I promise you we will get to Genesis 11. You can just see these verses on the screen as I mention them. But the first place we find the unity used is in the Old Testament. And the only place in the Old Testament, Psalm 133, where it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So although it's not very found, very found very often in the Old Testament, we can see from this time that it is used that unity is something that is to be valued, something that is good, something that is even pleasant. But notice what it says. It says when brothers dwell in unity. And we're going to come back to that idea later. From that one verse in the New Old Testament, we turn to four in the New Testament. Perhaps the one that comes to mind the most, that Floyd, I think you just covered this verse and as well as some others in your Sunday school class have been kind of hit and miss in Sunday school lately. But in Jesus' high priestly prayer in, in John chapter 17, we find Jesus using this word. If you read it in the New American Standard, it says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in unity, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. This is what Jesus is praying for his disciples. And in that prayer, he says he's not only praying for the 12 disciples, but he also says, I'm praying for all who would believe through their word. So in that prayer, Jesus is actually praying for us. I saw on social media, someone in a, in a Christian group I'm a part of, they said, somebody said that Jesus prays for us. And he said, I, I kind of feel uncomfortable about that. And many people corrected him and said, no, one of the most beautiful things in the scripture is that Jesus, even now in heaven, is interceding constantly for us. Jesus prays for us. And here in the gospels, we see one of the things that he prays is for unity, for unity. Or as the ESV says, that we would be Perfectly one. The next two verses in the New Testament where this word unity is found is Ephesians chapter 4. First in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Jumping down to verse 13, but just to kind of put it in context, 
Paul says that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, the structure, the, the, the gifts of, of preaching and teaching that have been given, they've been given so that we may attain unity of the faith. Now, one thing we should note here is that the Greek word that is translated as unity in, in Ephesians chapter 4 is a different word that Jesus uses in John chapter 17. In fact, of the four times the word unity in English is used in the New Testament, it's actually three different Greek words. Three different words are used to describe this unity. In John chapter 17, the, the word that Jesus used is heis, and it means one as opposed to many in number, used of a single unit or thing, not two or more. It's the same word that Jesus, or that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians where he says, for just as the one, as the body, the church is one in its many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of the one spirit. Paul says there's one body, there's not two. There's one Holy Spirit, there's not two. And Jesus says, I want you to make them one, not two. But in Ephesians chapter 4, the word is different. The word that... Paul uses is a different word. It's henotes. Henotes. And it means unanimity. Unanimity or agreement. And it means the quality of being united into one. So the word that Jesus and, and Paul uses in Ephesians is referring to quantity. There was only one church. But now Paul prays that we should desire to be more than just the quantity of one. But we should want to be a quality of one. It's a oneness that we are to share as believers. And these two places in Ephesians 4 are the only places where we find this word, henotes, used in all of the New Testament. However, it is a similar word that's used in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, again, the New American Standard says, Day by day, the disciples, all of the thousands that were baptized on that great day of Pentecost, they were with one mind in the temple. There's that word means more than simply they were one place, but they were with one mind. There was a, there was a unity, unity to them. There's a quality of oneness, not just the quantity of oneness. The only other place we find these, this word unity used in the New Testament is in Colossians, where again another Greek word is used. In Colossians verse 14, but again just to give the context, Paul writes, so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Sunday, Funday, I think a, a few years ago, I preached on this passage and I use the illustration of putting on clothes. Paul is telling, telling us to put on these items as clothing, compassion, kindness, humility. But then he says over all of these, put on the overcoat of love, which holds everything together. And that's what that word unity means here. It's, a, it's, it's syndemos and it means that which binds together. It's often used to refer to the ligaments in our body that holds the bones of our body together. It links things together. See the word synthesis in there, sin, syndomos. And here he's referring to love. Love among Christian brothers is the ligament that joins us together. So when the Bible uses the word unity, which it doesn't really do very often, this is what it's referring to in those instances. Now you may be wondering by now why your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 11. Maybe they're not open or maybe your finger you were trying to fill up and your finger is now numb from sitting in Genesis chapter 11 all this time. I, now we will go to Genesis chapter 11. And the reason I want to start, or not start, but go to Genesis chapter 11 is because here in Genesis chapter 11 we see a picture of unity. Really, if you think about it, it's one of the clearest pictures of unity that we find in all of the scriptures. 
One of the few times where we see people coming together and uniting to accomplish something. But if you have your Bibles open, you know that it's a picture that is not found in a chapter of God's blessings. But it's found in a chapter of God's judgment. Because this unity is found in the building of the Tower of Babel. Let me just read these verses and and listen to this picture of unity. Now the whole earth, starting in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. Do you hear the unity that is found at the Tower of Babel? It starts right in the very first verse, verse 1. Where Moses writes that they all, the whole earth, they had one language. And they were all using the same words. And the people, they all came together to accomplish one task. They said, come, let us make bricks and let us build ourselves a city in a tower. And this tower that they built is is so great that it got God's attention. Although I always have to laugh and maybe you heard a, a little chuckle as I read that, that they're building this great tower and God has to come down to see it. But it's a tower so great that in a sense it got God's attention. What an accomplishment. And God even acknowledges their unity. He says, look at what they're doing. They are one people and they have one language. And because of this, they will accomplish much. What unity? But what's the result of this unity? The result of this unity is judgment from God confuses their language he he disperses them across the whole earth and he breaks up their unity psalm 133 tells us that there is a unity that is good and a unity that is pleasing to god but genesis 11 tells us that there is also a unity that is displeasing to him so the question for us isn't simply is there unity the question is what is our unity one that pleases god As Charles Spurgeon once said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And more than ever, we need discernment. And we need discernment in the area of unity. Because the call for unity sounds great. It sounds right. But I fear that too often our unity is more in line with what we find at the Tower of Babel than the one that Jesus prays we would have in John chapter 17. So what should our unity look like? Let me give three important characteristics of biblical unity, and it will come in the form of three questions that we will look to God's Word to answer. And the first question is, who is our unity with? We're going to fill in more after this, but just these are the main points. This is where I'm headed. Who is our unity with? Next, what is our unity in and thirdly what is our unity for who is our unity worth with to be united implies that we are united to someone else there's more than one person involved who are we to be united to and with and what is it that unites us what is the bond the sin the, the, that that one word that paul used what is it that holds us together and third what is the goal the outcome of our unity why should we be unified in the first place. The first question, who is our unity 
with. And we can go back to the Tower of Babel and see what their, who their unity was with. And it was a great unity. It was a vast unity. Verse 1 says that the whole earth was united in one language. This is a great unity. It is a global unity. Now I think, I don't think from reading those verses that the whole earth, the whole world came together to build the Tower of Babel, but it appears that everyone who was in that location came together and said, we are all going to do this building project together. This is a great unity. Everyone coming together. But what about our unity? What about the unity that Jesus prays for in his followers? Well, let me answer that question by giving you the negation, the negative of that. The the wrong answers. Who is our unity with? Here's who our unity is not with. What we see from Scripture. And first of all, our unity is not with only those who are just like us. The first aspect of our unity that we see in the New Testament is that our unity is not uniformity. Our unity is not simply with those who look like us, talk like us, smell like us, and live in the same social status. As us, Our unity is not found in our uniformity. Instead, we see that the, in the New Testament that Christian unity is found in the midst of incredible diversity. And we can spend the rest of the morning pointing to verses that show and highlight this diversity. Start just with the disciples. And think about the diverse group of men that were surrounding Jesus. Yes, they were all Jewish. Yes, they were all men. But they came from every social strata of the Jewish world. Fishermen and tax collectors, those who were not usually united, are united around Jesus. Then we add to those who follow Jesus what we refer, what we looked at this morning in Sunday school, the many women who formed Jesus' inner circle. While not listed as part of the twelve disciples, they were certainly a part of Jesus' traveling companions and an important part of Jesus' traveling companions, particularly at the end of his ministry. Go on to the book of Acts, where in Acts 2 we see the first church being formed for those of many nations and many languages. That's why the, the gift of tongues was given on the day of Pentecost, because they, they had to speak in a way that multiple languages heard them proclaiming the gospel. The end of Acts chapter 2, we see those who are rich selling their land. They have, an, they have plentiful land, but they sell it in order to provide for those who can't even put food on the table. Rich and poor experience this unity. Then we begin, if we continue to go through Acts, we begin to add Gentiles to the mix. Now the picture we find in Acts is an increasingly diverse church. Growing together as one. Now we know there were bumps along the road. We know that many of the issues that Paul writes to in the epistles are written to letters to the early church. We know that they're addressing some of the issues that come with with this diversity being put together into one. We know in Acts there's, there's a problem between the Greeks and the Jews. But yet we see a unity that in many ways supersedes this. A unity in the midst of diversity. And we see that the unity that Jesus is praying for and that is accomplished by His prayers and by His work is not a unity of uniformity. Paul, looking out at the church in Galatians, says, Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what he doesn't mean is that there aren't Jews or Greeks there, but what he means is that there are. But those barriers that once separated you are no longer there because you are now one in Christ. So here is the where we start answering the question of who is our unity with and that it is not merely with those who are just like us. There should be a diversity in our unity and we should long for a diversity in our unity. Not simply for the sake of diversity, which we're, again we're going to get to later, but for the sake of showing the beauty of what unites us. Second place that our unity is not found is that it is not found with the world. It is not found with the world. As seldom as the Bible talks about unity, it talks much more about this type of disunity. Disunity that we are to have with the world. And this is important for us to see. And we need to see that the Bible actually calls for this disunion to be in our lives. 
That there are things that we can actually not be united with. And we cannot be united with the world. Now when I use that phrase, the world, I'm using it the way the Apostle John does when he refers to the world as that which is opposed to God and to His ways. First John, he, uh, chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, through 17, he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John says there are things that cannot be within the believer. There are things that we cannot unite our hearts with and still have our hearts united to God. Because uniting with those things actually tear us away from God. James chapter 4, verse 4. James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that a friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, I fear we have forgotten this. We want to be friends with the world. And, and, and we are horrified when we find out that we can't be friends with it and still hold on to our Christian convictions. But we see in James chapter 4 that it was never supposed to be this way. We were never supposed to be able to be friends with the world and still followers of God. And this does not mean that we don't have friends who are not believers. Obviously not. We're, we're to develop friendships and relationships. But we cannot develop friendships and relationships with the world, with the, with the worldly ways that they cling to and hold to. This word friendship is the word philea. We know the word philea because it's where we get the word Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. You can go there and decide if that's a fitting fitting name or not. Especially wear a cowboy's jersey there and you'll find out if it's really the city of brotherly love. But philea means to have love or affection for someone or something based off an association. Cannot have philea with the world. Notice what James says. He says, if you have this philea with the world, you are committing adultery with God. You are cheating on Him. You have taken another lover. Unity with the world must mean disunity with God. Jesus says in His high priestly prayer that the world has hated them. He's praying again for His disciples and for us. And they've hated them because they are not of the world. And we need to know this. Finally, and connected with that last sub-point, not only can we not be united with the world, but we cannot be united with those who are united with the world. Again, I'm talking about a unity. I'm talking about a, a, a oneness. There is a oneness that we cannot have with those who are united to the world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now we often, we limit that, the application of that verse to marriage, and we say don't marry an unbeliever. It's not, it's not, Christians should not be marrying and uniting and putting on the yoke with an unbeliever. And that certainly is an application, but it's not the only application. The imagery that Paul uses is that of a yoke. And a yoke was a a bar that was placed over the back of a team of oxen so they could pull the plow to break up the hard and hard ground. And it was put on them so that their strength would be unified and magnified. But it was also put on them to keep them going in the same direction. You couldn't have one ox going that way and one ox going that way and expect to plow in a straight line. And Paul says, why would you be yoked to an unbeliever? You are not going the same direction as they are. And here is where the calls for unity, particularly right now, are concerning. Many of them are sounded after the turmoil of the last election where the divide in our nation became very very evident. The call again was sounded to unite together. However, we have seen that the direction that our nation is going is not the same direction 
that we are going. And I don't just mean in terms of politics. I'm not saying one political party we align with and one we don't. We don't unite with either of them. There are both there are things that should bother us. But politics and what we are seeing in politics is really revealing what is at what is taking place in the culture at large. Politics is downstream from culture. And our culture is increasingly going in ways that are opposed to God and to His ways. Our culture looks as though we are getting our plays from the playbook of Romans chapter 1. But the outcome of those who are walking the path of Romans chapter 1 is that God gives them up. Do you do not unite to those who God has given up to their passions and to eventually destruction? Again, Paul says, what partnership does light have with darkness? And, and there's, we have to wrestle with the application of this. But we need to see the overarching principle in our lives. Jesus says our partnership with righteousness will actually cause a division, with, division between us and others, not a unity. Verses 34 and 36, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Just think about that statement. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Again, this is a hard one for us to grasp. Jesus came to bring division. He came to bring a separation. First Peter chapter 2. He came to call us out of darkness and into His marvelous lights. But in order to get into the light, we have to leave the darkness. There's a separation. There's a division that takes place. And that division is painful. I know it's painful. The division is not easy. But we need to see that it's not unexpected. Now Paul says in verse 18 of Romans chapter 12, he says, If possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all we need to factor this into what we've been seeing from the rest of the scriptures if possible paul says but notice that that implies that sometimes it will not be possible what paul is not saying is do whatever you can to live peaceably with all he is not advocating for a peace at all costs but he's saying when peace is possible strive for it Charles Spurgeon in his sermon, The Peacemaker, says that we are to be first pure and then peaceable. Don't get that backwards. We are to be first pure and then peaceable. Our peaceableness is never to be a compact with sin or an alliance with that which is evil. We value peaceableness, particularly those of us who come from a Mennonite heritage. We, we, we value peaceableness often at all costs. Charles Spurgeon reminds us we are first to value purity and holiness. Never make a compact with sin at the sake of peace. Some of you are old enough to remember Rodney King's words, and I'm not. I don't think I am at least. I'm not sure the time frame, but I at least don't remember seeing them live. But I've heard them since. Rodney King's words during the race riots of L.A. When he cried out, can't we all just get along? The city of L.A. was burning. Fights were breaking out everywhere. It was a place of chaos and confusion and division. And into that confusion, Rodney King cries out, Can't we all just get along? We are in the midst of a world that is burning and soon will burn. We are in the midst of a battle, a spiritual battle. But we must know that Rodney King's words are not our Lord's words. The solution is not simply, can't we all just get along? Because we know that we cannot. We cannot cater to the darkness in order to achieve some type of temporal, physical peace. There is too much at stake. This leads us to the second main point. Hopefully you see in the negative answers what the positive answer is of who our unity is with. Second point is, what is our unity in? Has that been up there? What is our unity in? And we turn to Paul's words to see what our unity is in. You know, sometimes when we hear the call for unity, we think that our unity should just be in our unity. 
Sometimes you hear people talk about their faith and when you, when you talk to them more, you realize that their faith is really merely in their faith. They have faith in faith, but there is no object of their faith, which means they have no faith. And unity, merely the desire for unity. And unity found that simply in some idea of unity alone is actually no unity at all. It's, it's not something that can unite us. So when we hear the call for unity, we must ask, what is our unity in? And Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4 what our unity is in. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our unity is found in the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. And it's found in the faith, in faith in Jesus Christ. Our unity is found in the gospel. The good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that is revealed to us and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. That is what unifies us. That is what makes this incredibly diverse group of people one. If we go back to the Tower of Babel, we see that the materials that they used for their unity were physical materials. It was a common language. They used the physical materials of brick and mortar to build up their Tower of Unity. And I fear that too often we as Christians in our church, in churches are looking to similar physical and earthly resources to build up our unity. But Paul says that is cheap building material, especially when you consider what you have at your fingertips. Martin Lloyd Jones says in his, in the basis for Christian unity, he says the ultimate question facing us these days is whether our faith is in men and in their power to organize, or the truth of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Too often, Lloyd-Jones says, we are settling for a unity that man can accomplish by our power and our ability, rather than finding our unity in the truth of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit to unite us. Mark Dever, in his book, A Theology for the Church, says, the the church experiences unity only as believers are united in God's truth as it is revealed in Scripture. This is what our unity is found in. God's revealed truth as found in His Word. It's the only thing that can unite us. But too often the church is settling for less than God, less than God's revealed truth as our source of unity. And what sparked this sermon in part was a podcast I listened to a few weeks ago on the subject of unity. And in that podcast, they referred to a a 1971 Coca-Cola commercial. I was not born in 1971, so I don't remember the commercial. But the commercial was a song of a bunch of people on a hill gathered together from all different ethnicities, and they were singing this lovely tune, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. I think I have, I won't play the whole thing. Might not play any of it. Maybe I won't play any of it. Can you hit play on there, Kevin? Do you remember that commercial? I do not. Manny says he does. You might have to go to... Yeah, see if you can go, might get me back on track. Now you're going to have that song stuck in your head. Just I was singing it in the shower and Kayleen hadn't heard it yet. So this morning I was, I was singing that tune and they were probably wondering, what in the world is going on with that man? He's lost his mind. What a great picture of unity, right? 
Everybody on a hillside, happy and, and joyful. The problem is, what happens when the soda bottle is empty? That's what our unity is found in. I like to buy a world of Coke, world of Coke and, and sit down. That's what the world wants. But as I see that, I think that too often our churches are trying to copy that model. Let's create an atmosphere that is welcoming. Let's, let's just play the type of music that everyone likes. Let's make sure we avoid saying certain words that won't offend. And well, let's just be really nice. Because being nice is good. And, and there's nothing wrong with being nice. There's nothing wrong with playing music that, that we like to hear and like to sing along with. But if that is all our unity is found in, then what happens when the bottle of Coke is empty? What you save them through is what you save them to, is a well-known saying that I've stuck to. I've heard right when we started at our church, and I've remembered that. What you save them through, what you think will save them and, and get them in the door and keep them in the door, will eventually be what they look to for salvation. When that runs dry, they leave the church. If our unity is found in drinking a Coke, if our unity is found in any of these cheap things, what happens when they are shown as shallow? What happens when we begin to disagree? J.C. Ryle in his paper entitled Pharisees and Sadducees writes, To keep gospel truth in the church is even of greater importance than to keep peace. Peace without truth is a false peace. It is the very peace of the devil. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the unity of hell. Let us never be ensnared by those who speak kindly of it. Unity which is obtained by the sacrifice of truth is worth nothing. It is not the unity that pleases God. Again, our question is not simply, do we have unity? But our question must be, do we have a unity that pleases God? When he looks down and and sees the church, does he see a tower of Babel? says, I'm going to scatter them. What is our unity in? Finally, what is our unity for? What is our unity for? What is the goal of our unity? Again, go back to the Tower of Babel. What was the goal of their unity? Their goal of their unity was let us make a name for ourselves. I saw, I remembered this story and I went and found it. It was one of my kids' favorite stories from the Jesus Storybook Bible. They always laugh whenever I read it because when they, when they start to speak different languages, they get all confused and get in a fight. But here's their motive in, in Sally Lloyd-Jones' uh, storybook Bible. She writes, yes, they said, we'll say, look at us up here and everyone will look up at us and we'll look down at them. And then we'll know that we are something. Everybody will look at us and say, look at them. They are something else. Now from Jesus Storybook Bible to Gerhardus Voss, Biblical Theology, Old and New Testament, he writes of the Tower of Babel, the building of a city and a tower was inspired first by the desire to obtain a center for unity such as would keep the human race together. But the securing of this unity was by no means the ultimate purpose of this effort. The unity was to afford the possibility of founding a gigantic empire glorifying man. And his independence from God. Yes, it was a desire to obtain a center for unity. Unity's great, right? But what is the purpose of this unity? To have depend independence from God and to glorify man. So that everyone looks at us and says, would you look at them? And again, too often I fear this is the motivating factor even within our own hearts behind some of our calls and our desires for unity. Look at us. Look at our diversity. Look at all the different skin tones that are represented. Look at all the different styles of dress. Look at all the different languages and nations that are represented here. Look at all our different backgrounds and the the sin that we've been saved out of. And again, those things are great. They are important. I long for our church to grow in that. I, there was a, one of the stages of my life that was one of my favorite things was on Sunday mornings when I would preach, I would print my sermon in English, Spanish, and French every morning for, for LSA, Marcos, and, and Nabi. I loved what that represented. It's beautiful, but it cannot be the goal. 
The goal cannot be. Look at how diverse we are. The other day I was, again, listening to that podcast and I was confronted with a a wrong view that I had of a particular scripture. And it's one of my favorite verses, so it's one I use quite often. It's Revelation chapter 7. It's this great scene around the throne of God. And it says, after this, John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And you look at that and say, how do you wrong? Hey, a wrong view of that. My wrong view was really a wrong focus, a wrong emphasis. Because my emphasis was always on verse 9. My emphasis was always on the incredible diversity of people showing incredible unity. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language with one voice crying out. And again, that is a beautiful picture, but it is not the point of that passage. It's not where our eyes should be fixed in those verses. Our eyes should be fixed on the place where their eyes are fixed. And that is the one who sits on the throne. The purpose of that passage is not to tell us how incredible the multitude is, but how worthy the Lamb is. That is why they are here from every tribe, people, and language. Because He is worthy of praise from every tribe, people, and language. This is the point of our unity. The point of our unity is not so people say, wow, would you look at them? But it's so that people would look at us and say, wow, would you look at Him? This was the reason that Jesus prayed that we would have unity. Notice the so that statement, the purpose statement. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. John, first John chapter four, another passage, my verse, my mind goes to when I think about Valentine's Day, about the great love of God. But what happens when we show love to one another? What's the goal of this out, this love for one another? God is revealed. The invisible God is made visible. This is to be the outcome, the goal, the purpose of our unity, that the world might know Jesus. Unity? Yes. But what is our unity with? Who is our unity with? What is our unity for? In, and what is our unity for? I'll close this morning with a quote from A.W. Tozer that perhaps doesn't relate exactly to where we are, but I think it sums up this passage. And times I like to lean on other voices. So it's not... I like to lean on other voices at the, at the close of a service. And that's probably too small for you to read, so you can just hear my voice reading Tozer's quote from Tozer. Culture, living as Christians of heaven on earth. He writes, The historic church, while she was a hated minority group, had a moral power that made her terrible to evil and invincible before her foes. When the Roman masses, without a change of heart, were made Christians by baptism... Christianity gained popularity but lost her spiritual glow. From there she went on to adopt the ways of Rome and to follow her pagan religions. The fish caught the fishermen. And what started out to be the conversion of Rome became finally the conversion of the church. And from that ignominious captivity, the church has never fully... has never been fully delivered. Christianity's scramble for popularity today is an unconscious acknowledgement of spiritual decline. Her eager fawning at the world's greats is a grief to the Holy Spirit and an embarrassment to the sons of God. The lick-spittle attitude of popular Christian leaders toward the world's celebrities would make such men as Elijah sick to the stomach. We are sent to bless the world, but never are we told to compromise with it. Our glory lies in a spiritual withdrawal from all that builds on dust. Our glory lies in a spiritual withdrawal from all that builds on dust. We don't build on sand. We don't build on dust. We build on the rock of Jesus Christ.
Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you have prayed. Jesus, we thank you that you have prayed and are praying for us in our weaknesses, in our confusion, in this time of chaos, Father. And you are interceding on behalf of your own. And we thank you for that. And we cling to that. But Father, help us to remember what you, Jesus, help us to remember what you are praying for. Father, you're not praying that we will be, Jesus, you're not praying that you, that we will be popular, that we will be comfortable, that we will experience worldly success, that we will even be spared temporary physical suffering. But you are praying that we will stand. That we will remain faithful. We thank you so much for that. We need that, God. We cling to that. And Father, may we remember that this morning. That these things are hard for us to process and apply to our everyday lives because they, they bring about hurts and pains that we're experiencing even now. The ones that we kind of wish we could just wash over and go away. But Father, we know that they are part of the reality of living in a, a world that is in a spiritual battle. And Father, our, our battle we know is not against the flesh and blood that we see around us. But our battle is against the spiritual powers at work in this world. So Father, may, may we wage the right, right war. May we put on our armor each day. May we wake up each day putting on the spiritual armor that you have given us. May the concerns we have about the world around us, Father, Drive us to our knees. Drive us to each other, Father. Father, we, 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 we do long for unity, to be more and more unified. So Father, help us to do those very things that build that unity. Father, as us here at Living Hope Fellowship, Father, we, we pray that we would not sacrifice purity for the sake of peacefulness or peaceability. But Father, we pray that we would remain faithful and that we would build this church, that you would build this church upon your word so that Jesus Christ might be lifted up in this place. Pray these things in his name. Amen. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand. Let me send you out with these words from 2 Corinthians chapter, the very last words of 2 Corinthians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. You are dismissed.